Well, I was torn this week as I was considering our next passage in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, one of the classic uh, texts in all the Word of God, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And uh, my first thought was, oh, the teenagers are going to be gone. Like 70 to 80 people in our student ministries are not going to be here. And uh, if there was ever a passage that uh, young people today needed to hear, right, need to hear is that, is that story of, of uh, standing up to, that, uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar when he wanted them to bow. And uh, they said, no, we're not going to bow and we're going to trust God to protect us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still, gonna, we're still not going to bow to you, King. And uh, what a great story there. And um, so I really, really want the teenager to be here when we go through that next text. And so uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you if you're like on the edge of your seat going, okay, let's, this Daniel thing's getting good, right? Um, but I thought that we should take a little break here this morning just so, uh, again, like I said, we could have our student ministry back in the house when we look at that passage and have them not miss out on that epic uh, story. And so as I was thinking about what I could teach this morning, uh, as most of you know, I've been teaching through the book of Lamentations with the students the last five Sundays. Uh, I've been there during equipping hour uh, with them, and, and it's just been a great, great time. Uh, and uh, I was just wishing that I had had that truth from the book of Lamentations or the theme of the book of Lamentations when I was a teenager. Uh, it would have saved me a lot of heartache. Um, when I dealt with my own sin or other people's sin, and that's really the whole point of the book of Lamentations, it's, it's how do you maintain hope in God amidst the heartache of sin? And uh, we were just talking to the students this last, uh, these last five Sundays about, hey, listen, we live in a sinful world, right, where uh, we deal with all sorts of stuff as a result of sin. Sometimes it's, it's sin from, um, from other people. Other people's sin affects us. And, and uh, most of the time, it's our own sin that we're dealing with and the consequences of it. And so where's the hope in all that? It's easy to get really, really bummed when you're faced with the re- reality of being a sinner living in a sin-cursed world. And um, one of the great joys that I have as a, as a pastor is being used by God, I trust, to provide a hope for hurting people. And whenever I have an opportunity to, to counsel someone who's dealing with some kind of life-shattering experience, like a divorce or a, a death of a loved one or, or maybe a, a child who has uh, gone away from the Lord or maybe a terminal disease or some kind of chronic pain or uh, maybe dealing with the devastating consequences or effects maybe of, of, of someone else's sin in their life or maybe the consequences of their own sin... My underlying goal and objective is to give them hope. Why? Because I think people in devastating situations like these need hope more than anything else. It's, it's the one thing that keeps us going in the midst of all the difficult circumstances that we face in life. It's what causes us to persevere in times of distress and despair. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 1.3 mentions that our endurance is inspired by hope. Well, what's the fuel, what's the gas in our tank that allows us to endure its hope? 
And without hope, life becomes very discouraging, very disheartening, and at times very depressing, and at times tempts us us to even think that we would be better off dead. And it's not uncommon to meet people who have completely lost hope, even the godliest people, by the way. I think of Elijah, for example, in 1 Kings 19, after the great uh, experience he had defeating the, the 400 prophets of Baal. Uh, on, the, uh, on the mountain there, um, and as soon as that happened, he went away. He found out that, that Jezebel wanted to, to kill him, said, you killed my prophets, I'm going to kill you. And so he ran away and hid, and he asked God to kill him. Talk about a mountaintop experience, right? And then down to the lowest valley of his life. And, uh, and so what did God do? God just put him to bed. He woke up and gave him something to eat. And uh, I told the students, you know, sometimes all you need is a nap and some Taco Bell. <laughs> and, and one parent came to me the next week and said, yeah, my son came home and said what he got out of the sermon was that I need a nap and Taco Bell. <laughs> I was like, okay, at least he was listening. I'm not sure that was the point I wanted him to remember, but he remembered he was listening, okay? But it's true, even the godliest people struggle sometimes with a lack of hope. You may remember the story of Catherine von Bora, who was married to Martin Luther. Most of us have heard of Martin Luther, but we don't know anything about his wife. Well, she was an amazing woman, and this, I think, account illustrates that, that during a particularly difficult period in Luther's life and ministry, he was carrying many burdens and, and, and fighting many battles, and he was usually very jolly and carefree and, and smiling, and he, he was at this time, however, overwhelmed with anxiety, and he'd become very depressed, which Catherine, his wife, graciously endured for days. Eventually, however, she got fed up with his uncharacteristic depression, and she came to breakfast one morning wearing a black dress, one that you would wear to a funeral. And Luther looked up and said, who died? And she responded, God. And she looked back at him and said, you foolish woman, what are you talking about? And she said, it's true, God must have died or you would not be so depressed. Well, her unorthodox therapy worked and Luther immediately snapped out of it. And I think that's just a good reminder that, like Luther, we're all guilty at times of losing sight of God, aren't we? In the midst of uh, the pressures of life and the problems that we face, and when we lose sight of God, that's when we lose hope. Why? Because God is the source of hope. It says that in Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So hope is found in God. First and foremost, and the primary means by which he provides us hope is through what? You got it sitting there on your lap, his word. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And of all the passages that I've ever gone to or turned to, in counseling sessions, for example, to give people hope, um, there's one passage that I've turned to more than any other passage to try to help people get their eyes off of their 
problems and back onto God, and it's Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3 is what I'd like to look with you uh, at this morning. Because not only does God provide us with hope through the many promises in Scripture, He also provides us hope through the many people in Scripture who experience similar trials that we're experiencing, even worse sometimes than we are experiencing, and how, how they successfully overcame them. I love 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says uh, that no temptation or trial has overtaken you, but that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able, but with every temptation, every trial, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. A very hopeful verse there. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, we all know this, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. This is verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, there's a whole lot of other people who are, going, who are dealing with the same sorts of stuff that you are, and they're hanging in there by the grace of God. And I think that Jeremiah qualifies, qualifies as one of our brethren, if you will, for, from whom we can draw encouragement and who should instill hope in our hearts. And, and of all places in Scripture, this is interesting, that some would, would uh, characterize Lamentations as the saddest book in the Bible. And I mean, it's actually called Crying. Grieving, mourning, that's what lament, lament, right? That's what this book is all about. It's, it's, a, it's a record of, of, of Jeremiah's mourning over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And it's really a, a spirit-inspired hymn of heartbreak, if you will, where we're given a, a glimpse into the heart of this godly man during the darkest hour of his life. And he's simply responding to the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people of Judah to Babylon. And by the way, this is um, connected to Daniel in the sense that this is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the one who, who warned the people of Israel, if you don't repent of your sin, God is going to use the Babylonians to come and destroy you. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the book of Daniel. And, and their young men being taken off into exile. And so here was Jeremiah left there in Jerusalem, mourning over this punishment that the nation of Judah was experiencing for their sinful rebellion against God. And, and how he responds here is really a, a model of how to grieve with hope. When we're overwhelmed with heartache and feel like we're drowning in despair, particularly when we're grieving over the consequences of sin, whether it's just the consequences of living in a sin-cursed world, and I've got this thing called cancer that is in my body that is no fault of my own necessarily, but it is the fault of living in a sin-cursed world where people get cancer, people get disease, and people die. Or maybe you're grieving because you are feeling the effects of someone else's sin in your life who is close to you, your spouse or your children or your parents or, or maybe a coworker. Uh, but they've sinned and yet it's a, you know, their sin's affecting you and you're grieving. Or maybe you're just grieving the consequences of your own sin, that you're this morning in a mess of your own making. 
and you're having to deal with, you're kind of having to dig out of a, of a pit that you didn't just fall into, you dug yourself because of sinful choices and compromises that you made along the way. Where, where's the hope? And that's what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says that I don't want you to grieve as the rest who have no hope. Obviously, that was in the context when you lose a loved one who dies, and, and, and how are we to respond? Well, we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. It doesn't say don't grieve. He says don't grieve like the world who has no hope. Go ahead and grieve, but make sure you remember there's hope in the midst of your grief. And so that's what we see happening here in the book of Lamentations. And, and again, of all places to find uh, what I think is the greatest dose of hope anywhere in the scriptures, uh, right here in chapter 3 of Lamentations, smack dab in the middle of this very sad, basically five hymns or five funeral songs. Jeremiah was mourning the death, if you will, of the city of Jerusalem. And, and, and why chapter 3? Well, chapter 3, interesting, if you just quickly look at, uh, overview the book of Lamentations, you'll notice just by observation, something unique, something that sets apart uh, chapter 3 from the other four chapters. Um, the other chapters all have 22 verses, and chapter 3 has... 66 verses, three times as many verses as any of the other uh, chapters, and that should jump out at us. And uh, just to remind you or let you know that when it came to Hebrew poetry, uh, the most important truths are contained in the centerpiece of the poem. And so here we have, right smack dab in the middle, we've got... uh, bookend by two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 4 and 5. We, we, we have chapters 1 and 2 leading up to chapter 3, and then chapter 3 leads down into chapter 4 and 5. And, and this is the high point, if you will. This is the main point of the book of Lamentations. And what he has to say here, he emphasizes three times to the third degree. He says it three times as many as many times as he did in the first and second chapter and the fourth and fifth chapter. And so here we have really the theological heart of the book. And up until this point, up until chapter 3, Jeremiah has done nothing but express utter hopelessness in light of God's wrath being poured out on his city and his people. It's like he's sitting there at ground zero, if you will, after 9-11, and he's looking at the rubble. He's looking at the destruction. The smoke is still going up, and, 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 and he's just sitting there in shock and sorrow. In fact, Rembrandt painted a classic portrait of Jeremiah sitting alone in what appears to be a cave on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem, and he was leaning on the Bible and surrounded by a few of the remaining vessels from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar kept there and didn't take away with him to Babylon. And behind Jeremiah is the ruined temple, and it's still smoldering. But nowhere in this famous painting did Rembrandt include any ray of hope that we're about to see here in chapter 3. 
And I'm no Rembrandt, but if I were to plant, paint uh, this picture, I would have somehow painted a, a sun coming up over the horizon, maybe uh, over the, the rubble of Jerusalem, just to provide a contrast of comfort and hope to the desperate, depressing scene that laid before Jeremiah's eyes. If I put a title on, uh, if I had to put a title on chapter 3 of Lamentations, I would just simply call it Hope on the Horizon. Hope on the Horizon. And I want to just walk through this text quickly with you this morning. Hopefully it'll be an encouragement to your heart. And uh, we're just going to see it break down into three sections here. We're going to see the prophet's pain, we're going to see the prophet's portion, and we're going to see the prophet's prayer. Let's look first of all at the prophet's pain in verses 1 through 18. And before I read this, I want you to know that Bible scholars and commentators split into two camps over this chapter. Some say it reveals Jeremiah's personal experiences, whereas others suggest he's simply speaking on behalf of Jerusalem. Well, I think it's not either one or the other. I think it's a both and. What Jeremiah personally experienced paralleled and personified much of Jerusalem's experience. Notice verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He's referring to Babylon, who was the rod of God's wrath that he used to punish the Jews. We know in Proverbs the Bible says to, to parents, don't spare the rod. And so basically God used Babylon to spank his children. And Jeremiah was a part of that. And, and, and the tragic events that, that Jeremiah described and has been describing here in Lamentations would never have happened if the people had listened to him and obeyed God's word. But they turned a deaf ear to him for 40 years. I, I've only been pastoring here for maybe 17 or 18 years. I can't imagine what it would be like to, to, to be up here preaching for 17 years and all of you guys just going, yeah, whatever. We don't care what you have to say, Ken, and we're not going to do anything you have to say. That would be difficult to deal with, but he did that for 40 years, and the people refused to do anything he said. In fact, they, they, they took him and threw him in a pit. They, 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 they mocked him. They, they even tried to kill him. And so, as you can imagine, when this stuff comes to fruition... All of his prophetic warnings of destruction come true. In some ways, he feels like complete failure. I'm, that's how I would feel if I was up here preaching for 15, 16, 17 years, and, and you guys hadn't done a word of what had ever been taught. I would feel like a complete failure. What's worse, as we're going to see here, he felt like God, who initially promised to stand by him and to strengthen him and support his ministry, had totally turned against him. In fact, that, that God had become his enemy. And you'll, you'll notice this as we read through verses 2 through 18, this, as, he, as, 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 as Jeremiah just pours out his pain. He just expresses his pain with all these metaphors and vivid images that, that, that describe his experience. I mean, 
both his outward affliction and his inward turmoil. Let me just read this for you. Verse 2, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship in dark places. He has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I'm becoming laughingstock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. Who is he blaming for all the bad things that he was experiencing? He's attributing those to God, that he... That he kept saying, he has done this and he has done this. I mean, he's even set me up like a target. He's using me for target practice. That's how Jeremiah felt. Notice how he ends this in verse 17. My soul has been rejected from peace. I had no peace. My heart was in total turmoil. I have forgotten happiness. I was totally unhappy. In fact, I couldn't remember the last time I was happy. So I say my strength has perished. I felt absolutely weak. And so has my hope from the Lord. I mean, it's difficult to imagine anyone being in a more desperate, hopeless condition than Jeremiah. There are times when I've met with folks who have described just a horrific scenario to me, whether it's in their their marriage, their family, their health, their work, there's something going on in their lives, and and, and they're just, they're really, they've lost hope. They're, They're completely unhappy, they're in complete turmoil, and I'll be like, you know, can I read something to you? Well, let's look at Lamentation chapter 3, and I'll just read through that deal. And it's interesting to see the response. Oftentimes it's like, wow, I can relate, I can relate to that guy. Um, or, wow, that's, I thought I had it bad. Uh, the point is, as we relate ourselves in our situation to Jeremiah, so oftentimes it's like, you know what? Either, man, I've got it good, or, you know what? I get that. That's exactly where I'm at. That's exactly how I feel. I feel like God himself is out to get me. And that really sometimes is at the core of our pain. Well, let's look at the prophet's portion. Thankfully, that's not all we have in this chapter, but we we not only see the prophet's pain, we see the prophet's portion. And while on the brink of utter despair, drowning, here he was drowning in despair, Jeremiah got to thinking about something that kept him 
from total despair. He remembered something that caused his soul to rise from that deep, dark pit that he was in to the mountaintops. Notice verse 19. Remember my affliction, my wandering and wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. Whoa, whoa, time out. Just a few verses earlier, he said he had lost all hope. But he remembered something. He recalled something to mind that restored his hope. You're like, hey, I need to, I need to be wake up right now because whatever it is that's coming next is really important because I feel like I'm in that hopeless place in my life right now. What was it that he remembered that he recalled to mind that gave him hope again? Verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He got his eyes off himself and his circumstances and back on God. He turned his focus from his miseries to God's mercies. He stopped listening to himself, if you will, and he started talking to himself. Even as we've read the last couple Sundays, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your what? Hope in God. Psalm 42. Sometimes we need to give ourselves a personal pep talk, right? This is uh, Jeremiah, it's another example of somebody giving himself a, a personal pep talk. He, he was reminding himself of, of God's love that never ceases, his compassions that never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His mind began to clear, and he realized that God had never failed him up to that point, and so why would he start now? As one commentator said, he said it this way, the prophet's mind and heart settle afresh upon the glorious divine attributes in their unchangeable beauty. When sin drives the soul from God, its hope perishes. Only as the soul returns to God is its hope restored. And so he was reminded of God's unceasing love, his unfailing mercy, and his unchanging faithfulness. And no matter how you feel or what you might see around you, these things are always true. I love the imagery here. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We were in our bedroom the other morning and the sun was coming up and a ray of light shot across our bedroom wall and my wife said, look, there's the faithfulness of God. It's a great reminder every morning when you see that sun rise, right, and crest over the hill, uh, I guess there's not hills here, crest is over whatever, it crests over here, the trees, <laughs> um, the lake, right, um, your, how, your roof, uh, you know, in your house. But when you see the sun rise, That should remind you instantly of this passage, that that's a demonstration. The fact that the sun rises every morning is a reminder of God's faithfulness. It never fails that the sun rises, right? It it, it always does that. Sometimes you may not see it, 
because of the clouds or whatever, the fog, and it's true, right? Sometimes we get, our, our world gets really foggy, our life gets foggy and cloudy, and it's hard to see that sun rising. It's hard to break through and see the sun, but it's, it's a good reminder every time you've gotten on that plane and, you've, and it's been raining out or it's been overcast and you break through the clouds, what, what's going on above the clouds? You come out of the clouds, you're like, whoa, check it out. It's gorgeous up here. The sun's shining. Everything's bright and blue. There's those blue skies, right? Why? Because the sun is always shining. Sometimes we just can't see it. I shared the, with the students a, a part of my own testimony when it, in regards to my call to ministry, and I had the privilege early on of being mentored and discipled by a, a godly man who took me under his wing and, and treated me like his own son. He was my Paul, I was his Timothy, and we just had this very unique relationship, and we thought we were going to serve the Lord many years together, and, and, um, and uh, through a series of circumstances, um, he came to me and confided in me that he had attempted suicide. And I was shocked. Here's my mentor, the, the guy I want to grow up to be like, said that he wanted to commit suicide. And, and I asked him why, and he said, well, he said, I got caught in sin. And, and I didn't know what else to do. I didn't want to face the consequences of my sin. And he went on to tell me how he had been gotten involved sinfully with a a girl in the student ministry that we were both working in, and, and um, while they had repented of that sexual sin and moved on, uh, several years later, this young gal had ended up in counseling, and it came out in counseling, and as, uh, according to the state law, you have to, if you hear about any kind of sexual misconduct with a minor, you have to report that as a counselor. And so the counselor reported this, and next thing you know, a, a, a police officer or an investigator, I guess, was called my friend and said, hey, is this true? Did this happen? And he said, yeah. And he ended up having to spend about seven, eight months in, in, in prison because of uh, inappropriate action with a minor. And I'll tell you what, when that all happened, my spiritual life hit the skids. I mean, I just was like in a dive bomb, just going down. I mean, I, I you could ask Kelly. She was uh, we were dating at the time, and and uh, and and she will remember this. I I wouldn't even pick up my Bible. I, I didn't even want to touch my Bible, let alone read my Bible. I, I didn't want to pray. It's like I couldn't pray. I didn't know how to pray. It's like everything went away spiritually in my life. And I was thinking, man, if this guy can't be a man of integrity and be faithful to his wife, then how am I going to do that? And it's just through me, again, my whole life went into a tailspin, and, and uh, I, I wanted to do anything but ministry. And so God was very gracious to me over time to restore my heart and my mind, and I went on a missions trip uh, that summer afterwards, and, and just God, through that whole process, began to restore my heart. And I remember going back to the, the master's college that year, and I was in my dorm room one morning, and I was... Uh, getting back into the Word again. I'd been able to get back into the habit of having a quiet time. And, and so I was there on my knees. I'll never forget, on my knees, by my bed, and, and, and had the Bible open. And uh, as I was reading the Scriptures that morning, all of a sudden this ray of sun, the sun came up over the hill uh, and shot into our dorm room and shot across the page of Scripture. And again, I'm not like, ooh, do, 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 like, uh, this is so cool of an experience. But for me at that time, 
that, that was for me in that I had just been through a very long, dark, cold night of my soul. And that was a visual reminder to me that, you know what, the sun will always rise. The sun will always rise. And unfortunately, some, some of us find ourselves in those deep, dark, long nights, and we don't have any hope, and we don't see any ray of light, and that's oftentimes when people end up, what, killing themselves, committing suicide, because they, 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 they just don't see how any of this can get any better. And so I'll never forget that experience. And, and again, whenever I read this passage about how God's love indeed never ceases, His compassion never fails, they're new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Every time I see the sun rise, I can't help but remember that experience. And, and it's a great reminder for me on a daily basis, no matter what I'm going through, God is faithful. God is faithful. And the fact that, and this is interesting, this is ironic, the fact that God... was disciplining his people was evidence of his love and faithfulness and of his mercy. The fact that they got caught in their sin, the fact that there was consequences for their sin, that was the mercy of God. He didn't just say, well, they're not my kids. (laughs) I'll just let them go off and do what they want to do, right? Isn't that what Hebrews 12 talks about? That, That if you're a true child of God, that you will be disciplined, just like a good dad disciplines his child. because he loves them, right? Listen, if you can go on sinning and have no guilt, no consequences, you should wonder whether or not you're a child of God. And so the fact that the nation of Judah was getting spanked, if you will, this was evidence that God was being faithful to his promises. He said, listen, if you obey me, I will bless you, and if you disobey me, I'll curse you. He was being faithful to his promises. And so even in judgment... This was a witness to the fact that God hadn't abandoned his people. And of course, we know and love that hymn that comes straight from this verse, verse 23, great is your faithfulness, right? We love that hymn. Morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed thy hand hath provided, great is thy faithfulness. Lord unto me. And so whatever challenges, whatever trials, whatever disappointments you might be facing in your life right now, this hymn, Great is Your Faithfulness, this passage is a reminder that God keeps His promises. He never changes, His compassions never fail, and that His faithfulness to us in Christ is more than just good, it is great. And so whether it's the death of a loved one or... um, Maybe watching someone that you love die. Um, Maybe it's the death of a marriage. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's some physical or emotional pain and suffering. Maybe it's a child that has walked away from the Lord. Uh, Whatever tragedy you might be dealing with or might deal with in the future that, that would lead to a feeling of hopelessness or unhappiness, you need to remember that God is your portion. He's enough. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. That expression, the Lord is my portion, is, a, is another way of saying that, you know what, God is all I need. I have everything I want, everything I need in God. He's my portion. I don't need a godly spouse. 
I don't need perfect health. I don't need to be pain-free. I don't need to have my kids walking in the truth. I don't need any of that. Why? Because I have God. He's my portion. And he's enough for me. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth I desire what? Nothing. Psalm 73, verse 25. And so you're sitting there going, okay, I, I get, I, I can, I'm relating to all this right now in a big way. So what do I do? Well, look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who what? Wait for him. To the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 27, it is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. So what Jeremiah is learning here is, is, hey, you know, I just need to wait patiently and silently for the Lord to work and accomplish his will and his time. Again, this isn't a passive, stoic you know, just bearing up under all this. It's an act of resting in the goodness of God with hopeful expectation that someday this trial will come to an end and and it may not be in this lifetime, but it will be in heaven where all the weeping and the lamenting and the grieving will cease. There will be no, he'll wipe away every what? Tear from our eyes. And you'll be the first to admit, I'm sure, that you have learned far more during hard times than you have during easy times, haven't you? Someone said it this way, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. What was it that Jeremiah learned from walking with sorrow? Well, notice it's all about God. Verse 30, let him give his cheek to the smiter, let him be filled with reproach, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? What's going on here? Well, I think what Jeremiah is expressing here is that God is never closer to us than when he's chastening us. And even though we may see a frown on his face and the rod in his hand, there's love in his heart. And he's simply reaffirming the truth here that nothing occurs unless the Lord has decreed it ahead of time. There's no secondary causes. Listen, this comes directly from God's hand. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's fair. And this is so good for us, especially verse uh, 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? We're always trying to backpedal when it comes like, well, why did that happen? Well, don't blame God for that bad stuff. 
We like, to, we, we like to attribute all the good stuff in our life to the Lord, and we're, we're slow to attribute anything bad to Him. It's like, well, that was the devil, or that was me, or whatever. Well, Amos 3, 6, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? What did Job say to his wife when she said, you need to curse God and die? She said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? The Lord gives, and the Lord, what? Takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chuck Swindoll says it this way, regardless of the adversity we suffer, a sound understanding of God will help ease our pain and provide us with hope. Without a clear grasp on who God is and how he relates to us, we are adrift on the sea of life, unprepared for the storms that, we're sure to, that are sure to strike us. However, the better we know God, the more equipped we are to weather whatever comes our way, a proper understanding of God brings needed and reassuring perspective to life's pain. Listen, there's no more important thing about you than your view of God. Because that's what comes into play when you go through those horrific trials and days of depression that so many of us often deal with. It's our knowledge of God. It's, it's who we know God to be. Well, not only do we see the prophet's pain and the prophet's portion, but notice the prophet's prayer here. Just quickly in closing, the prophet's prayer, the rest of this, this chapter is really all a prayer. It's a prayer for deliverance. It's a prayer of rest for restoration. It's a prayer of vindication. And basically, when suffering is deserved, it should produce in us confession rather than complaint. Look at verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? What are you complaining about? You got nothing to complain about. Because wherever you're at in your life, you're better than you deserve. <laughs> right? Let us examine and probe our ways. And let us return to the Lord. We lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven See this, this act of prayer here. We've transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and have not spared. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us mere offscouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have befallen us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. There it is. That's what's going on in the book of Lamentations. He's crying uncontrollably, if you will. My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. And so what is he doing? He's examining himself. And he's realizing that the whole point of this destruction and deportation was to bring God's people to their knees in repentance, that they would confess and repent of their sin, that God was chastening them to cleanse them. And here he's expressing his confidence that God will yet intervene and come to the right. He will forgive them. He will restore them. And notice verse 52, 
and following, Jeremiah just recalls some personal, merciful interventions of, of God in his own life, and he applies them figuratively to the nation of, of, of Israel or the nation of Judah, that God will also rescue them and judge their enemies in the same way that God vindicated him and judged his enemies. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit. In a place they stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. You drew near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded my soul's cause. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen my oppression. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance and all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my assailants and their whispering are against me all day long. Look on their sitting and their rising. I am their mocking song. You will recompense them, O Lord, according to the work of of their hands. You will give them hardness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. And so Jeremiah saw all the wrongs that were done to him and even the wrongs that had been done to the nation of Judah by the Babylonians. And he simply committed his cause and their cause to God's infinite justice. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 30. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a, what? Moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Again, the beautiful imagery there of the nighttime and the darkness of the night and then the brightness of the morning. And so here we should find our hope in God. And ultimately, our hope in God is found in who? Jesus Christ. And if you remember back in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall, in the very midst of, of Adam and Eve being punished and being judged, and God was handing out curses to the man and curses to the woman and curses to the serpent, right? Curses for everyone involved And while he was discussing just the misery of the curse of sin on mankind, God gave hope. He promised that there was one who would come who would bear the curse of his people in order to take away the sin of mankind along with all of its misery. All the pain, all the heartbreak, all the the grieving that sin causes in our lives. And obviously that was a reference to Christ. And what we need to remember is that while God did not spare the nation of Judah, they reaped what they sowed, and even we are not spared, we reap what we sow, God doesn't spare us from punishment, we also need to remember He didn't spare His own Son, amen? And Romans chapter 8 talks about that, that he did not spare his son. But he punished his son, his own son, who was perfect and sinless and never did anything wrong, never committed one sin. 
but God's curse against sin fell upon Christ on the cross and he poured out his wrath on his son for your sin, for my sin. That's the hope of the gospel. That yeah, while I have royally messed up my life because of sinful, stupid choices I've made, the Bible says if I confess my sin, I admit it, I acknowledge it, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the good news of salvation. That doesn't just apply to unbelievers who may be here this morning who need to repent and believe today for the first time. It's for those of us who have repented and believed in the past, but we still sin, don't we? And we still mess up our lives. And we still experience what it's like to be spanked or punished or disciplined by the Lord. And in those moments, God is drawing us to himself. He's wanting to make us more righteous, more like Christ. And so we respond in humility and brokenness. And we confess our sin and we seek the forgiveness that we have in Christ. J. Adams said this in his Christian Counselor's Manual, quote, in times of trouble, when our sin has brought misery into our lives, all of us need to be reminded of the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is the one unfailing certainty. And one of my favorite things to say in a counseling session, particularly when I have discerned that the person who's going through this horrific situation is not yet truly repented, has not yet truly believed they're not a Christian. This is one of my favorite lines. Is, is Listen, I need to tell you something. That your problem is way worse than you realize. You, you're telling me about your divorce. You're telling me about your marriage. You're telling me about your kid. You're telling me about your whatever. Listen, your problem is way worse than you realize. But the solution is way better than you can imagine. Because you came in here to tell me about this problem, this little problem in your life. And I'm here to tell you the gospel. That your life can be totally, radically changed forever. If you understand who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. That's the hope of the gospel. Forgiveness, victory, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in you and in your word. Thank you for the book of Lamentations, even though it seems to be a, a very sad and, and, and difficult book to work through. Lord, we see a man grieving over sin. And yet, Lord, we all can relate to that because we live in a sin-cursed world. We get sinned against and we sin. And Lord, we need to know how to grieve and deal with the consequences of sin with joy, with hope, with confidence, with perspective, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray if anyone's here today who's got their eyes off of you, they've lost sight of you, 
And as a result, they've lost hope. I pray that they would get their eyes back on you today. And once they get their eyes back on you, I know that that hope will follow because you are the source of hope. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us to to learn to live out these truths in our lives, Lord, to no matter what we're going through, no matter how hard it might be, that we would always look for that sun to rise because we know it's coming. It's just a matter of time. And that you would uh, sustain us and grant us endurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.